Okay. Advent. Happy, happy Advent. Happy late Thanksgiving. Happy Advent to you all. Uh, I love this season, this season of preparation. Advent means, um, it's Latin for arrival or coming, and it's, it refers, of course, to the arrival or the, the first arrival, the coming of our God who made us, our creator. He actually became, he became one of us. And the whole Hebrew Bible, the whole, it's also called the Old Testament, um, points to that. But it was a surprise when he did it because it was kind of veiled in the Old Testament and it, it was just so mind-blowing. So it happened, um, but Advent isn't just a time to remember that he came, it's also a time to live between his two comings because he's coming again. He's coming again as a conquering king and he's reigning now. And so Advent is a time um, both to look back to the fact that he came that he's with us now by his spirit, he's reigning, but that he is gonna come again and he's gonna finish what he started and the party's really gonna start. So part of Advent is longing and that's one reason that we were singing earlier today trying to put ourselves in the place of his Old Testament people, Israel. There's a sense of longing in that song that we were singing about, oh come, oh come. Um, Come living God. So we know that he has come, but we also wanna put ourselves in a place of longing to remember what it must have felt like on this side of his coming, but also to know that we're saying, come, come back, Lord. And until then, help us to haste the day by living the gospel out and proclaiming the gospel. So, so this is Advent, and usually in Advent, every, every Advent, I think, what is this? This is our fourth, I guess. So every Advent that we've been a church, we've always been in a gospel. That's our thing. We, we go to a gospel and it's, it's obvious why. We, we look at the coming of our Lord um, as a baby through the womb of Mary. But we're, all, we're in Isaiah for the five weeks. We're in Isaiah this time for the first time. And you might ask why, if we're celebrating, why aren't we in the gospel? Isaiah, by the, a lot of the early church fathers, also called the patristics, were, was known as the fifth gospel. Um, and you might ask why. It was known as the fifth gospel because there's, it's Christ, it's a, it's a prophet that prophesied 600, excuse me, about 700 years, seven centuries before Jesus came about all manner of things, but really about the coming of the Lord and how he's gonna make all things right and about Messiah. And it's so, the, the prophet seven centuries before Jesus is so Christ-saturated that a lot of the early church fathers called Isaiah the fifth gospel. Um, there are over, by many counts, over 600 references, whether explicit or oblique, to Jesus in, um, in Isaiah. Or, you know what? Gosh, I didn't write that one down, not on this manuscript. Just for the record, it might be, I think this is right. This is right. There are over 600 instances, whether explicit or oblique, of, of, of the mention of somewhere in the prophet Isaiah in the New Testament. That's, that's the fact. Sorry, sorry I got that wrong. So it's, Christ, it's a Christ-saturated um, prophet. So Nathaniel read this text from Isaiah 2, 1 through 4, um, really close to the beginning of the book. And it's a text about a mountain, and I'm calling it the magnetic mountain, a, a mountain that draws people from every nation to God. Um, and so I just want to focus in really the whole sermon, but especially this first point on mountains. Um, Mountains in the ancient Near East and around the world in ancient cultures were places where people went to meet God. So if you think about the ancient Near Eastern ziggurats in Mesopotamia and elsewhere, um, you could think about closer to home like Chichen Itza in Mexico, 
uh, with the pyramids there. You could think about uh, Machu Picchu and the, the fortress up there in, in, high in the mountains that some of you have hiked to, I know. Um, but also in that fortress, there's a, there's a temple, of course. Um, and so and you've got the Aztecs, you've got the Incas, you've got the Mayans here closer to home. You have all the ancient Near Eastern attempts to get up to God, to worship God, to meet him as we go up to try to reach him and to get closer to him. Um, and we might kind of smirk at that. And that's the sort of a, I don't think we would hear necessarily, although we might in our own way, but our culture certainly would, the idea of going up to try to meet, meet up with, with a, higher, a higher power. But I want to submit to you that um, we're, we're none the wiser. We do the same thing, but just without God. So like when you talk about getting high, um, if you've heard, we've all heard that expression, even if we've never done drugs, the attempt is not to get low. The attempt isn't to get low, it's to get high. It's to have an experience that lifts you out up to some sort of transcendence, or if, if that doesn't hit home, at least we've heard that. We've all, we've all really worshipped at sporting events, football games, basketball games. I feel like more so in this part of the country, football. You know, we don't, when our team does well, we don't do this. And no one tells us to do, bam! But we're worshipping, we're, we're reaching up, we're lifting up our hands and our countenance. Likewise, nobody has to, to teach us when we're full of shame to do this. We don't do this. We do this. And so it's instinctive in us, but what we've, done, what we've done away with is just the idea of God in our culture. But we still want to get high. That idea resonates with us. There's a book, a really, a really, really good book by a guy named Wade Davis. It's called Into the Silence. And I read it a few years ago. And it's about uh, the first attempts uh, to summit the highest mountain in the world, Everest. Kids know, you know you've heard of Everest. Um, and it was the first time, so it was, Wade Davis makes a really compelling case for the fact that he says, why? Why do these British guys wearing tweed jackets, these Edwardians that had just gone through the first war, the Great War in Europe, why did they try to summit this mountain on the other side of the world? The natives, they saw it as a holy mountain. They saw it as a death mountain. There's no way you're going up there. You're going to die for a lot of different reasons, exposure of all kinds. Um, they thought that these guys were crazy. And some of them were, were, uh, were called into uh, sherping and carrying baggage for these men. But why, what was driving these men? There was something, he says, it was, there was such a loss, even though the Allies won the Great War, there was such a sense of loss because of all the carnage. Um, and, and it was really a pyrrhic victory for the Allies that there was a hole, there was a gaping hole in the, the national soul of Great Britain. And so he makes the case that there was a, they were seeking a sort of national redemption, because it wasn't just George Mallory, who's the featured mountaineer that has three attempts on Everest. It was all the nation. He did global tours gathering support, and everyone was so excited to be behind him as, as he did this, as he sort of, as Wade Davis says, tried to, to recapture a sort of national redemption for the huge loss. So there was a sense of redemption, even moving God to the side in seeking to go up, seeking to summit this thing, and it cost Mallory, spoiler alert, sorry, it cost Mallory his life, eventually. It was extremely costly. Um, so mountains are places where we, want, we seek to get to a higher something um, in the ancient world to, to God or the gods. Um, but it, it's hard, just like as illustrated by Into the Silence with George Mallory. It cost him a lot. It was extremely painful. It's hard to climb up a high mountain. It's hard to get to the gods or to God. Um, in Ezekiel chapter 28, Ezekiel's a prophet, and in chapter 28, 
it says that Eden was on. Eden was the place that God put our first parents, and he made for them a paradise, what, in which to be with them, in which to be. That's what, like Justin was saying when he was singing earlier, that's what we're made for is to be with God, and we run hard after everything else because of our brokenness um, to try to satisfy ourselves, but what he made us for is to be with him. He did that. He put man and woman in the garden to rule over his creation, to image him, and to walk with him. And Ezekiel 28 says that Eden was on, the mount, on a mountain. And in, in Genesis 2, it talks about the rivers flowing down from that place. And so it was at a high place where they met with the living God face to face. But we know, a lot of us, not all of us, the story, the true story, the fact that the sense that we have that something has gone terribly wrong and that going up to meet with God is, is incredibly difficult and not impossible comes from the fact that our first parents fell, they disobeyed God, and they were estranged from God, and everything under their dominion was ruined in the process. So we have this primordial, very real sense that we want to get up. We want to reach something that connects us to God or whatever it is that we believe that's, that's beyond ourselves, but it's hard, um, and, and there's something terribly wrong. Noah, you see this just briefly traced throughout the rest of Scripture. So Noah... Um, he, there's a sort of recreation event with Noah. Eight people are saved as God wipes out an incredibly evil humanity. Humanity has strayed so far from God that he starts over basically with Noah and his family. Eight people saves them in an ark, floods the whole earth, and then puts the ark as the waters drain out, puts the ark on top of Mount Ararat in the Middle East. And so Noah starts over, as it were, from a mountaintop, just as with Eden, right? But it's not... It's not very long at all. He plants a vineyard. Uh, this righteous man plants a vineyard, gets drunk on the wine, and things just start to, the same sorts of things start to happen as happened with Adam and Eve. It's like a, it's like a redo. Um, Babel's a couple chapters later. The tower, a lot of us know how that ended up. Man trying to get up high to God, and it's an absolute disaster. They, they're, they're scattered over the face of the earth, partly because God is saying, he gives them all different languages so they can't work together, and he's saying, that's not the way it works. You cannot you can't get up to me. There's a sense that we have to, but he's just saying with Babel and other things, you can't do it. Fast forward to Exodus, and God brings his own people out of Egypt, out of slavery, and he brings them to the Sinai Peninsula before taking them into the Promised Land. And what does he do? Right before that, he meets with Moses, who's dried up. He's 80 years old. He thinks his life's over. He meets with Moses where? On a mountain, Mount Horeb, which means dryness. Moses is in an extremely dry place in his life, Exodus 3 and 4, God meets with him. He meets with him in a burning bush that's not consumed. And, he's, and, um, and he says, I'm going to bring you and I'm going to bring, I'm going to show you that this is what I'm doing by the fact that I'm going to bring you back here to this very mountain, which we then call Sinai. It's the same mountain as Horeb. But I'm also going to bring two plus million people out, slaves, out of the most powerful nation on the earth to this mountain. And that's going to show you that I'm with you. And so he does that. And we a lot of us know that story, the story of the Exodus and the plagues and how God strikes Egypt with a mighty hand and he brings out his people, much to the chagrin of Pharaoh, um, who pursues them. And so he brings them back to this mountain, Sinai. And, and just to step back for a second and pause, Sinai, the place where God, he's, he's chosen a people through no good of their own to be his own treasured possession because of his grace and mercy. But then he gives them a law to abide by at Sinai. He says, you're my people, now here's how to live and flourish. And that's, Sinai is where he gives them that law. What happens? 
He says, only you, Moses. A few elders at some point to have a meal, but other than that, you. You come up according to my word in exactly the right way and come up and meet with me and I'll give you the law for the people. And what does he say? You know, if anyone else approaches contrary to my word, if you even get too close to the mountain or a cow gets too close, put barriers around it. I don't want anyone to die because if anyone gets too close because of my presence there, they'll die. It's a very dangerous, it's a very dangerous place to be in the presence of God with our broken, sinful, totally shattered, depraved human state. It has to be according to his word. It's, it's hard. It's very hard. Psalm, Psalm 15, it's a terrifying place, right? Psalm 15 is a wonderful psalm, but it's also terrifying. And it says, who may ascend? It starts off with this wonderful question. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? And who may dwell in his holy place? And the answer is, he who has clean hands, you've done no wrong, and what? A pure heart. And he goes on to make the way, to show that the way is even more narrow. Who here has clean hands and a pure heart and has never let anything wicked come from his lips? I will not raise my hand, friend. And if you're honest, you will not either. We cannot, on our own steam, summit the mountain of the Lord. And then we finally fast forward to David and then all the way to the New Testament. Um, Jerusalem. It's on a high place. Whenever you read about going to Jerusalem, it always says going up to Jerusalem or coming down from Jerusalem because it's in a high place. It's surrounded by mountains. And the temple's on one of the highest places, if not the highest place in this high place of Jerusalem. And that, you know, it's not as high as any mountains we're familiar with, but it's kind of more ideological. The idea is that, again, it's hard to get into the presence of God because of our sinful state. So think about it this way. All the earth God made, and they're all the nations of the earth. And then you have Israel, the holy land, God's people that he's put in that land and said, kick everyone else out and show them what I'm like, and then I'm going to bring the nations in, okay? So Israel, the promised land. And then you have Jerusalem, the holy city. It's up high. It's hard to get to. And then on the highest point in that city, you have the temple, the temple mount. And within the temple mount, you have certain barriers to entry. And the court of the Gentiles is the outside. And if you're not a Jew, that's as far as you go, friend. And most of us here, if not all of us, raise our hands, that's as far as you go, okay, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. Then after that, you have the court of the Jewish women. You can go in a little farther. If you're, if you're not a man, that's, that's it for you. And then within that, you have, for the men, the Jewish men, and then within that, you have the temple precincts and the courtyard where only the priest, one of the 13 tribes, can go, the Levites. If you're not a priest, you're done. Sorry, that's as far as you go. That's your barrier to entry. And then within that, to go in the temple, it's even more exclusive. And then to go inside of the most holy, the holiest place, the holy of holies. What? You have to be a priest. You have to be appointed. It's once a year. And if you do anything wrong, they tie a rope to your ankle and they pull you out because they're not going in there. It's extremely, extremely exclusive. It's hard to get to God. There's, um, I think a lot of us probably watched a movie or two this over the Thanksgiving break, and I'm certainly no exception. I watched my favorite movie of all time, Chariots of Fire. Chariots of Fire. Spent some time in Scotland, so that didn't hurt, uh, but it was my favorite before then. And Chariots of Fire is a true story based on a, it's, it's a, a true story about a man named Eric Little, who was a Scotsman, but he grew up in China with parents were missionaries and then went back to China. 
and it's about the 1924, just after the Great War, the 1924 Olympic Games in Paris. And it's about him, but it's also about a man named Harold Abrams. Harold Abrams, who's a Cambridge man, and Little comes back to Scotland for a while from China, uh, trains, he's a rugby star, he trains to uh, be in the Olympics, qualifies, he's going through Edinburgh University, my alma mater, whoop, um, I just whooped like I'm an Aggie, but um, I'm not, my wife is. Um, went to Edinburgh University, got a degree from there, and it's about these two men, Eric Little, who's a Christian, who loves the Lord, and, and Harold Abrams, who's, a, who's Jewish, you could be a Jewish believer in Messiah, but he's not. He's always trying to prove himself. And it's about these two men and their paths. And Abrams, in this really poignant moment before the Olympic Games, says he's on the table being worked by his trainer. And he says, I have, he's miserable. He's miserable because he goes, I look down that lane. He's a 100-meter dash man. He says, I look, he's talking to a friend. He says, I look down that lane, and I have 10 seconds to justify my own existence. And it's a lot of pressure. And heretofore, I've been afraid to lose, but now I'm almost too afraid to win. Um, that is what he's telling himself. Those 10 seconds are what he's telling himself is his identity. That's his mountain. And we all have something like that. It could be the opinion of a boss, um, another colleague, friends, lovers, seeking, seeking to climb those mountains, seeking to gain their esteem. We we need to be justified. We need to be approved by something higher, something outside of us. We have that, even if we don't admit it, we have that sense in us. Um, and it's there for a reason. Um, but like I kind of touched on for Abraham's, he, uh, I, won't, I won't spoil it, but, um, well, I will. Uh, great movie, watch it. Um, for Abraham's, he does win his final event. And he ends up saying something that's kind of surprising, but then it's so poignant when you watch it, it's really not surprising. He says he has an even harder time winning than he does losing. Um, why? He wins, and it's the hardest thing on him because he's put his whole life into justifying himself and basically telling himself, if I can just cross that line first in the Olympic Games, the highest, that's it. That's the, that's the pinnacle. That's the top of the mountain. That'll be it for me then I'll feel fulfilled. And guess what? He, he breaks the tape and guess what happens? Guess what's on the other side? Not fulfillment, not, self, not satisfaction, not my raison d'etre, not my reason for existence, not at all. Just a broken piece of tape. That's it. He doesn't, nothing has changed. He discovers the horrid truth, the horrid but on the other side of it, if you get to the right place, the wonderful truth, you cannot justify yourself. You can't do it. And that is frightening for him because there's nothing else for him um, on the other side. So that's, that's, that's um, you go up. That's, that's point one. I didn't enunciate the points. They might be on the screen. Okay, point one in the sermon, you go up. We, the sense of a mountain in this text of Isaiah might seem antiquated and kind of naive, but I hope now that you see that we all have our own mountains in which we're trying to get to God or whatever, whatever it is that's number one for us. Um, but the fact is, point two, that he came down. That's what this text is all about. Um, right before this, Isaiah's just started. Chapter one is all about, it's a really long prophet. It's a 66-chapter it's a prophet. Chapter one is all about how unfaithful God's people have been. Israel's already been exiled, the northern tribes, by this point that Isaiah's preaching, that, um, yeah, that Isaiah's prophesying and preaching. Judah, to whom he's preaching in particular, the southern tribe, is about to be exiled. 
and they are in a terribly, they've been rebelling from the Lord, they've rejected him, they're, they're full of sin. So it's a surprise that in chapter two, early on in the book, after a, after a chapter uh, in Isaiah one of God saying, you've rebelled against me, you've turned from me, um, there's no solid place in you. In chapter two, he speaks this word about a mountain that's gonna grow up um, and it's going, to, it's going to be in Jerusalem itself and it's gonna draw all nations to God. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very hopeful word. And a lot of commentators say that this is like a, it's really clear when you look at it carefully in light of um, what, else, what has come before, the mountains that have come before. This is like, a, it's presented as like a second Mount Sinai where God gave the law, the terrifying mountain that was on fire and black. And if anyone touched it but Moses, they would die. Um, but this is the opposite of that. If you wanna get a characterization of this mountain in Isaiah 2, this is the opposite of that. It's extremely, what's the word? Approachable. This mountain is, it's magnetic. It's beyond approachable. It draws, it draws people, not just from Israel and Judah, but from all nations up to it, okay? Um, it's not hard to ascend, uh, to ascend. On the contrary, it pulls people up. Like I said, all nations. If you look at verse two, it says that all the nations flow. They're like streams and they flow. All, wait, streams flow downhill, but these flow uphill. They're drawn uphill to the living God in Jerusalem, not just the Jews, but all, all nations. Also notice, if you look at verse three, um, this is, again, it's, it's more of the same, but it's, it's a super accessible, it's a place where God himself, our creator, the thing for which our souls yearn, even if we don't know it, even if we've called it something else, um, drugs or the approval of someone or, or you, know, you know, worshiping our, football, our, our, our favorite sports team or, or whatever it is that we're running after for approval. Um, this, this thing is super, and this is, it's God himself. That's, that's who, who made us for himself. Um, super accessible. So it doesn't just say they'll come up to the temple and be in that place and worship God. It says they will be taught by him. Do you notice that in verse three? So you're not just learning from a priest. When you are drawn from every nation up this mountain, you'll be taught by the living God himself. Notice how opposite that is from Sinai. God will be super accessible, and it's like another Eden. It's like what we were made for, face to face with the living God, walking with him, talking with him, hearing from him, having him in our hearts as it were. Okay, pause. I wanna take you, I wanna fast forward um, from that, from Isaiah to Matthew. Matthew, he's the first gospel of the four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Matthew presents, uh, he presents Jesus, the Messiah, that's right at the center of this picture of this mountain that Isaiah's painting. He presents Jesus, the Messiah who's come, the one who has, we celebrate during Advent, he, he has arrived, right? He presents um, Matthew to, Jew, to a Jewish audience as the, the second and greater Moses. So there's a lot I could say here. I'll just say a little bit. But um, so a few, a, few, a few bits of evidence there. Moses um, was threatened by Pharaoh with his life. All the Hebrew baby boys under a certain age were, gonna, were told to be thrown in the Nile River. There was genocide. Um, and so Moses uh, was spared. Same thing with Jesus and Matthew presents this. Herod tries to kill all the baby Jewish boys under a certain age and and God comes to Joseph, um, G- Jesus' adoptive father, in a dream and says, flee to Egypt, get down. So, so Jesus is spared. 
um, as this maniac ruler tries to kill all the boys just like Pharaoh. He goes down to Egypt, right, where he lives for a while, a few years, until Herod dies. And then, a, and then an angel comes again to Joseph and says, you, Herod's dead. So Jesus comes out of Egypt just like Israel, just like Moses. He's brought out of Egypt, okay, and he then goes to the next thing that Matthew shows us basically after Jesus comes out of Egypt, he grows up and it says that he goes to be baptized in what? The Jordan River. He crosses through the waters of death and they essentially part, the heavens part, and God says, this is my beloved son. So just like Israel crossed over the Jordan into the promised land, Jesus crosses over, but from the promised land into what? The wilderness. Where like Israel, he's tested. Next thing that Matthew presents. He's tested for 40 units of time. 40 days and 40 nights, just like Israel was tested and failed miserably to obey God in the wilderness. Jesus is tested for 40 units of time. He passes. So he's doing, he's doing what Israel didn't do in Israel's place, in the place of God's people who are disobedient. We are disobedient. He's living life in our place for us. So then Matthew 5, why am I saying all this? Matthew 5, as the second Moses, what is Matthew doing? You know what Matthew 5 is? It's the beginning of the greatest sermon ever preached, right? The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So with this in mind, what, what is Matthew doing? Jesus, he walks up on the mountain to get the law like Moses did from God. No, he sits down and he's the, he's the opposite of not approachable. He's uber accessible. People sit around him, his disciples sit at his feet, and instead of getting the law from God in fire and, and smoke and darkness, what happens? He opens his mouth and he starts to speak and he says, you've heard it said, but I say to you. My friends, no prophet ever spoke like this. Moses certainly did not. Jesus, Matthew is showing us that this man is God himself giving the law from the mountain in a way that is so accessible. And he, he puts an exclamation point on that at the end, all throughout. The people, what does it say in Matthew 7 at the end of the sermon? He closes his mouth, he sits down, he is sitting down, and it says they were astonished at the, his authority and power. But then right after that, the first thing that happens in Matthew 8, after he starts to come down the mountain, is that who approaches him? Anyone know? A leper. Someone full of leprosy who is extremely, according to the law of Sinai, extremely unclean. You could not touch a leper and not become unclean. And he approaches Jesus, which is in itself like a law no-no. And what does he say? He says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And what does Jesus say? He could have just, with his word, with his powerful word, he is God among us, Emmanuel. God has come to live among us, to give us his law. He's accessible. He could have just said, I am willing, be clean. But he didn't. He said, I'm willing. And as he did that, he reached out and he touched this leper. And instead of being made unclean, he makes this leper completely clean. It's like Matthew is putting an exclamation point on the fact that this is not this is the God of Sinai, but now this Isaiah 2 mountain that is drawing all people to himself, super accessible, where he will teach us from his own mouth. That's him. He's here. Come to him. Um, Jesus, in John 12, he says, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. And John goes on to comment, and he says, in case you're wondering what that meant, let me tell you. He was talking about his cross. He was talking about his death. Think about this. He came down. He's saying, 
it sounds at first like he's saying, when I'm lifted up, when I'm over everyone. Rather, we know that when he's lifted up on the cross, he's going in that moment to the lowest possible place. He's going to hell for anyone who would look to him for their salvation. He who lived a righteous and perfect life of obedience from the heart to the Father in our place is now dying in the place of sinners. In being lifted up on the cross, he is being shamed. He's becoming our sin, 2 Corinthians 5. He's enduring hell for us. And in being lifted up, he basically says, I am the fulfillment of Isaiah 2. I will draw through my cross. In being lifted up and in going down to the lowest place, I will draw all men to myself. Because it's God who teaches. You know, this, this mountain, um, God himself is there. He's drawing us to him. And this is exactly what, he, what he's doing. In um, the minute that he breathed his last, what happened on the temple mount, in the temple, in the place that separated the most exclusive place, the Holy of Holies, from the rest of the temple in the world? What happened to that temple curtain? It tore that thick curtain that kept all the unclean out, tore from top to bottom when Jesus breathed his last. In other words, he is saying, Isaiah 2, game on. Nations come. Anyone come. You cannot get to God on your own. I've come down as the God-man to bring you to God myself through my cross. It is the one way that we can be with God. We have a message to proclaim. And we have a God to follow and to adore and to love. Um, Since the fall, uh, for most of history, man has been trying to climb the mountain. But in Jesus, God, God came down. Back to Abrams in the chariots of fire with 10 seconds to justify ourselves. We kill, we kill ourselves in whatever way trying to justify ourselves. But he was killed to justify us. That is the way to be justified. There is nothing on the other side of the tape. There's nothing at the top of the mountain. And that, it's like the Olympian, sort of like Abrams after he broke the tape and it was harder to win than it was to lose. There are Olympian after Olympian after Olympian um, have been recorded as saying, it's not, the hardest thing is not training as it were, to run up the proverbial mountain. Most Olympians devote a good portion of their lives to training for that moment. And when they get gold, a lot of them will say, the hardest day of their lives is the next day. When they wake up and they realize, that's it. We kill ourselves trying to justify ourselves, but he was killed to justify us. So finally, point three, um, we go up, uh, he came down, but we... We get to go out because he came down. Um, Harold Abrams versus Eric Little, back to Chariots of Fire. There's a scene, and it happens. It's my second favorite scene in the movie. It happens right outside of where we lived in Edinburgh. I almost teared up watching it, the end of it last night. He takes Jenny, his sister, who's with him in Edinburgh, but she's working with him on his mission in China to reach the lost there. Um, and she's all worried about the fact that he's going to forget about China in all this training for the Olympic Games. And he takes her up to this place that was really just in our backyard, right under, uh, God, I'm tearing up. I miss that place. <laughs> it's a powerful scene, too. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's called Hollywood Park, and it's, and it's right under Arthur's seat, and it's this beautiful green um, lawn that slopes down the mountain and the city skyline of Edinburgh, they call it the Athens of the North with good reason, it's a beautiful city, is out in the distance and he says to her, isn't this, isn't this gorgeous? And it's, it's dusk, it's a beautiful scene. But he takes her and the wind is whipping and he, and he has his collar up and he takes her out to this 
place right outside of Edinburgh. And he says, and he's, call, he's just speaking to her. He's calming her down. He says, Jenny, Jenny. He says, I believe I'm going to invoke a Scottish burr, so you just guys got to stay with me here, all right? I can't resist. He says, Jenny, I believe God made me for a purpose. He made me for China. So he's reassuring her, right, that he's not going to forget. He's going back. And then you know what? I'm reading a book called For the Glory Now, which is most of it's about what happens to Eric Little after, after he wins gold. And he could have exploited that and been a star and lived a high life in Britain, but he goes right back to China, and he ends up dying in 1945 at the end of the war in a, in a Chinese, in a Japanese uh, prisoner of war camp in China. Um, but he says, I believe God made me for a purpose, for China. And he says, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. And it, to him, I love that because when he ran, what, where did his strength come from? It, when he ran, he worshiped. He was worshiping God, not because he was trying to justify himself. He didn't have 10 seconds to say, this is who I am, and if I win, I'm something, and if I lose, I'm nothing. He had already been justified by the living God through the person of Christ, and so he ran free. In the movie, he runs. They get it right because he has, a, he has um, tan here, and then right from here down, it's not tan. And if you look at pictures, that's exactly right. He, was a, he wore a clerical collar, and he would preach after races all the time. And so he got, he, it's because of his clerical collar. And so here's this Olympian that just runs like a wild beast for the glory of God that has this. T- but what they got wrong is Jenny, um, his sister, was a big consultant. She's thanked in the uh, credits for all the help that she gave to the Chariots of Fire crew. They ended up winning Best Picture in 1981. Um, but she says they got one thing wrong. They did a great job, but they got one thing wrong. In the movie, he puts his head back like this when he runs, and it's, you know, he, you could just see him worshiping God. He's free. He's already been justified. He's not doing it to justify his existence. But she says, what they got wrong is not that he put his head back, but they, he didn't have his head back enough. When he ran for real, it was like, boom! I mean, he was just looking straight up. He wasn't looking at the spectators. He wasn't looking at the track. He was looking at God in gratitude for the fact that God came down to the lowest place and was lifted up on a cross. And in doing that, he said, I will draw all nations to myself. Um, and so Harold Abrams is so jealous in a good way of this freedom that he sees. And he said, he unnerves me. He's like a wild animal. And that's right. He's wild. He's free. Because Christ, what he, what he knows is that Christ has set him free. Christ has done the work that he never could do. Christ is that mountain um, and came down to bring, to bring him up. Um, so back to the text and then to close um, if you look at the text that Nathaniel read for us today Isaiah 2 you notice a few more things one of them is that the mountain itself is a temple it doesn't say the temple will be on the mountain it says that the mountain is the temple and what is a temple a temple take away all the trimmings what's a temple for a temple is the place where God and man meet in peace even though man's guilty he makes an offering it's costly and it's innocent. And that offering of something innocent in his place gets him with God in peace. And that's, friends, the temple 
existed for no other reason than to point us to Jesus. Jesus is the temple. The New Testament and Jesus himself make this abundantly clear. He is the place as the God-man, God come down to be one of us. He is the place where God and man literally in his person meet. And he is the place through whom we meet God in peace. He justifies us. He takes the wrath of God for us and gives us his peace and his righteousness and his joy. Jesus is the temple. And so this text is saying Jesus, when he's lifted up, will draw all people to himself. He is that mountain. He is that mountain. And um, 1 Peter 2, 4 through 5, say that we are too. Read this. Read this. So Jesus is the temple. He's the temple tabernacle, a place where God meets. 1 Peter 2, Peter says this. Peter, who was with Jesus for three years. As you come to him, he's speaking with Christians. He's speaking to Christians of all stripes. In 1 Peter, he's not just writing to Jews. He's writing to Gentiles as well from all over the Mediterranean. He's speaking to all nations here, and he's using Israel language. He's saying, as you come to him, verse 4, a living stone. Jesus is that living stone. He's that stone in Daniel 2 that breaks up all the idols of the world that we worship, and it becomes a mountain, and it fills the whole earth. That's Jesus. Um, as you come to him, Jesus, a living stone rejected by men. What was Jesus, do- what happened to him? What was his plan of salvation? To be rejected. He used our sin against not us, but for us, to become our sin, to provide a way through that on the cross of being our salvation. He used all that Satan purposed against Satan himself to deliver us from darkness. But he says, um, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, that was his plan on the cross, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Here he's talking to us now. Listen, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house, a temple, Listen to this language, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And when does, so we, we in going up this mountain and finding Jesus there and meeting with him and seeing him lifted up on the cross and believing that he is the way to God, he is the way to all those yearnings that we have in ways that we're trying to justify ourselves, he's done it for us and he is our heart's desire. When we come to him, um, he gives us his spirit, lives inside of us and makes us little dwelling places of the living God. He makes us little temples. And that is one of the ways that the Daniel 2 prophecy will be fulfilled. Is that the mountain, Jesus himself is that mountain, that rock that's gonna fill the whole earth, that's us. As, as we go out into the world, in the places he's called us to, as we have this gospel of not self-justification, of not climbing the mountain, but of the fact that he came down and has justified us and made a way to God, um, as we have that on our lips and proclaim it, we see people set free, be brought to God through the person of Jesus Christ and what he's done, and become little temples themselves, little carriers of the spirit of God, going out into the world. Um, and so when is this all going to happen? Isaiah starts the passage by saying it's going to happen in the latter days. And when are those latter days? To use this season and put it quite simply, those latter days are the times between the two advents of Christ, between his first and his second coming. In other words, we're in those latter days. Look no farther than Acts chapter 2. What does Peter say? He gets up at Pentecost and he says, what is happening right now was prophesied. What is starting to happen right now with the Spirit coming and living in us? and Christ being proclaimed through us. It's the inauguration, the beginning of the fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel in Joel chapter two, the prophet, where Joel says, in the latter days, 
these things are gonna happen. The Spirit's gonna fall and the gospel's gonna go forth. Um, and so Peter tells us we are living, starting with the first coming of Christ, his crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, where he's reigning. He is reigning now and he's reigning what? Through you, his little temples. Um, the result of that, as we, as we wrap up, the Isaiah 2 verse 4, the result of that, what's the result of that? What, what happens to the nations? What happens to the world because of this mountain? What's the effect? Draws all nations uphill to himself and they go out with the word of the Lord, Jesus himself, on their lips and in their hearts. But what's the result of that? Isaiah 2 4. The result in a word is peace. And there's all this sort of agricultural language used for that. Like their swords are going to be, what does it say? Their swords are going to be, was it pruning hooks? Their swords will be built into things where you, you use plow, you know, plowshares or they're plows. You plow, you, you, you're doing things to, to put money in the bank, to put food on the table, things that we all want to be doing. Their spears shall be reforged um, into pruning hooks where you take, you're pruning a tree and you're taking fruit off of trees. This is agricultural language. Um, nation isn't going to war against nation anymore. And so when this penny drops, or we don't, we don't have to keep climbing up that mountain to prove ourselves. We don't have 10 seconds to justify our own existence. It's been done for us. We can start to run in life, whatever we're doing, with our heads up like wild animals set free, because that's what he's come for. It's for freedom that he's come to set us free. Um, when that penny drops, there is peace on our lips and in our hearts, and it sinks deeper and deeper. We're not trying to justify ourselves through our performance anymore. We've been justified. We've been accepted. More than that, we've been loved. We've been made sons and daughters through the Son of God given for us. When that penny drops, we become a people of peace, and peace spreads out from these little temples through Christ who is reigning through us, reigning from heaven through his church, and his kingdom goes forth and will become a whole mountain, a mountain that fills the whole earth. It's happening now, and it's happening through you. And um, there's also the bit, though, about how, like, we, it's, a nat it's a worldwide global peace where there's no more war. Has that happened yet? No, of course not. The 20th century was the bloodiest century on record. So there's a sense in which we live in between the two advents. He will come again and finish what he started. He will bring a complete peace. But the peace, the peace that he made was on the cross, and it happens here, and it starts here, and it goes out from here into our relationships, into the environments that he's placed us in with our coworkers, with our family, with our friends, with our enemies. Um, and as that peace spreads, it will speed his return where he will bring a peace that is final and conclusive and complete. Um, so let us be that kind of people living truly between the two advents, knowing that we've been justified in Christ. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your plan that in the fullness of time, showing us that we, we couldn't climb the mountain on our own, you came down, you sent your son to, uh, to draw us to himself by being lifted up on a cross. And we celebrate that now. Um, Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here that is trying to self-justify, that's looking to something else to, to tell them that you're worth something, that they would look no farther, that they would come to you even this very morning. 
um, but also it's for we who we believe, we trust you, but throughout the day, we, we are climbing different mountains, trying to get to you through our own efforts. Lord, we put those down, put those efforts down and know that you've done everything necessary for us to be, you've approved of us, you've loved us, you've set your love upon us, you've given us your spirit, the seal of our salvation and redemption. You're doing the work. Help us just to rest. Give us that joy and that peace that's complete in Christ, Lord. No matter where we are, what circumstances we're in, what sort of waves are laughing up against our door, the doors of our lives, Lord. Um, help us to repent in Christ, to, to look to him, and to let your peace settle in and then, and then flow out from us. We love you. We bless you. In Jesus' name.